Hey Fixing Ferrazine fans, it's Tom here. And in this episode, Andy and I were joined by the marvellous Richard Perry and Jeff Schrieffels. And it was lovely to hear some dulcet American tones, which add a real richness to our audio quality. And kudos to Richard and Jeff for having their own podcast and having um, brilliant podcast quality microphones. Richard and Jeff are the authors of It's Not Just About the Money, which is a fundraising book that was published a couple of years back now. And they joined us to talk about their latest publication, It's Not Just About the Donor, which is their ultimate uh, handbook management guide to major gift success. And really we talk about a broad range of things here. So if you're not a major gifts fundraiser, you might be thinking, oof, that's not for me. But what Andy and I wanted to really get from Jeff and, and Richard is an understanding of how a lot of what they teach about and, and a lot about what they guide fundraisers about is applicable across all fundraising uh, disciplines. You know, how to uh, make an emotional connection with your with your donors, how to bring emotional storytelling into every discipline. And we really explore that, I think, in, in a good amount of detail. and really um, get to the bottom of uh, their their wisdom and I think um, there's some really useful tidbits in here some really useful nuggets of information uh, and there's also um, a couple of links out to Jeff and Richard's website and a couple of their resources as well I hope you enjoy listening to this episode and I hope you get a lot out of it and as always wherever you are I hope you're safe and well happy listening Hello and welcome back to Fixing Fundraising. I'm Andy King and I'm as always joined by my wonderful co-host Tom Dufresne. I'm here. I'm still wonderful and you sound very crisp, Andy. I do sound so crisp. We went on someone else's podcast and they taught us, well, specifically me, how to do audio. What Mm. a treat. Feedback is a gift, isn't it? Not audio feedback, just just (laughs) critiques, but hey. Ah, podcast jokes. How inclusive. I love it. Podcastception. This is where we're at. (laughs) Uh, Today, we're joined by two awesome guys from the Veritas group, Richard and Jeff. Today, we're here to talk about um, the key parts of fixing fundraising that come out of your your recent book. Richard, do you want to tell us a bit about it to start with? Yeah, well, one one of the big things that's happening, uh, Andy and Tom, uh, in in philanthropy, and this is all around the world because we've done the analysis of uh, of the data of, is is this whole thing called value attrition, where you where you measure what the same donors gave year to year, and donor attrition has been a really big thing uh, that that they've talked about that we've talked about where a donor goes away, but value attrition is uh, is this. this phenomena where like 40 to 60% of the revenue from the same donors just disappears. And uh, it, it's, uh, it's millions and millions of, of uh, depending on what country you're in, uh, dollars, pounds, euros, um, that, that they disappear. And it has its, uh, it has its, uh, its uh, origin in bad management, uh, not loving the donor, um, not telling the donor they made a difference, treating the donor as a as a as a uh, source of cash versus a, as a true partner, and all of that kind of mixes in together, 
uh, with with what the, what the problem is, which is why we wrote the book. Let's get our act together internally so that we actually see a different result and a different relationship with the donor. I mean, Jeff, you might add something to that. Yeah. I'm sorry, guys. Can you tell me the question again? We'll go back to it. Sure thing. Um, it was just kind of introducing the the key theme of the book, why it was written, yeah. and what the big problems that you see are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, Richard, I think, uh, you know, to add on to what you said, what we're seeing is such poor leadership in nonprofits and how they run major gifts and how they uh, manage their major gift officers and how they, they actually don't even really know how to do major gifts at all. And so Richard and I, you know, many, four years ago, we wrote a book. It's not just about the money. And it's really just all around this idea that this is about caring and nurturing your donors first. It's building that relationship. And then over the years, we've been hearing from major gift officers all over the world constantly saying, my, my nonprofit leader doesn't understand about major gifts. They, mm -hmm. don't, they don't understand how, uh, what I'm trying to do and build relationships. They just think I should just get out there and get the money. And so we, we've over and over again, over the years I've seen, have, after we've been getting this uh, emails and phone calls and going to conferences and hearing this, Richard and I were like, we've got to our next book, we've got to write for those nonprofit leaders and managers because they need help. They need to understand what this major gift work is all about. They need to understand what it's that it's about the donor first and to take care of their staff and people to make sure that they have a long-term vision for what major gifts is about and not just pressuring their staff to just run out and get the money. And so that really is what was the inspiration to get us going and write this book so that we could help come alongside of these managers and leaders and say, hey, there's a different way to do this. And I would say that the whole major gift, it's, it's beyond major gifts, which is the top end of the donor pyramid, if you look at it that way, or the end of the donor pipeline or, or whatever you use in in your world, but it's 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 about fundraising in general as well. How you think about it and how you do it, that's not only what goes external to the organization, but what happens internal in the organization. Uh, and it's, it's, it's about philosophy and beliefs and values, behavior. Yeah. I think it's super interesting to to hear that that piece you said, particularly about lots of, of major gift officers saying their senior management think they should just get out there and get the money. Um, and one of the reasons that Tom and I were so keen to speak to you is that a lot of the principles you're talking about apply far beyond the major gift world. Mm -hmm. um, so I work largely in a corporate space and my managers think I should just go out there and get the money is probably one of the starting conversations I have the most often. Tom is very much in the digital tech space, and I won't speak for him, but I assume from conversations we've had that that's something he's heard quite a bit, and that that putting the donor before the money and possibly putting the staff member before the donor is 
is something that I think is really important for all fundraising leaders to hear, whether they're managing major gift programs, trust programs, corporate programs, or more. Um, and I'd love to hear kind of your your advice that if if someone is listening to this, particularly if they're a, a low or mid manager, and they hear, oh, yeah, my managers just want me to go out and get the money. What are the steps that they can take from here to start changing that? Well, I think one of the first things to do is 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 if if that person could, is to do the analysis, uh, and we could we could help actually guide that in terms of how you do it, but to show uh, quantifiably and economically what's actually happening to the organization as a result of that behavior. What we found uh, over the years, Andy and Tom, is that you can go in and talk and make a, you know make some presentation to an authority figure about all of these things that we're talking about and not get their attention. But uh, if you can go in and say, you know what, you lost $51 million from this, this, uh, this cohort of donors over the last year or $2 million or whatever, uh, it actually turns their head and gets their attention because they, uh, they need the money and they want it because they're money focused. So that that's I don't know I, I I it's been very difficult to convince anybody by just presenting the argument it's they have to experience the loss and the pain uh, in order to pay attention yeah Richard's right when we go into organizations and do our donor assessment that's how we start out every kind of engagement with a potential client is we look at their data and we do this analysis that shows one year over the next, the same donors, how are they behaving over the over the next over the next four years? So for example, we'll look at an organization who thinks they've been doing pretty well. Bottom line revenue year over year, they're growing, you know, five, maybe even 10% a year. Mm -hmm. And so they're kind of feeling pretty good about their major gift program and how their donor pr programs are going. We do this analysis that show the class year of donors. So for example, in 2017, how you know all those donors that gave a thousand plus cum in that year, let's say it's a million dollars or a million pounds, million euros, and we track their same donors giving behavior over the next four years. And then after, by 2020, at the end of 2020, those same donors that were giving a million in 2017 are now only giving, you know, $350,000. And then we ask the question, what happened with these donors? Some got went away and some stopped giving, you know, big gifts and now are making small gifts. Why is that happening? And more often than not, it's because they're not cultivating and stewarding these donors. But when a CEO or an executive director looks at that looks at that assessment, they they are blown away. Like we have lost hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars that we didn't even realize was happening because all we did was look at the bottom line numbers. And the reason why they're growing is because new donors keep replenishing that thousand plus category. And so it masks the behavior of the donors who gave the previous years. And so 
when they see that assessment, they see the raw numbers, they realize, gosh, we are, we're doing something wrong. And that is, as Richard said, that is the thing that wakes them up. Well, and you can, and you can look at an individual uh, fundraiser, so a frontline fundraiser that's assigned a certain number of donors. So let's take uh, like an example. Uh, let's say that there's a fundraiser in, in London that, that works for a charity. And they have 150 qualified donors on a portfolio or caseload. And that the value of that, let's say, is a million pounds. And you look at the caseload, the bottom line, and, and you look year over year and you see that it's actually grown. The bottom line, 6%, 8%, 10%. But when you take that caseload and divide it into classes or cohorts of similar donors, those that gave a thousand pounds or more in one year, you see that the the attrition is you know, like, like Jeff was saying is like four hundred thousand pounds covered up by the new donors that that they've, they've added to the caseload over time, uh, or or a large gift that came in, and you look at some of these donors, and these are really faithful donors who've been around for a long time, who've just basically stopped giving as much as they did. They're still giving, so we haven't lost them, but they're not giving as much. And um, it's all symptomatic of, uh, of something wrong in the system. I wanted to come back on that, this phrase you used that was really interesting, which was this this kind of class year of donors. So, you know, the class of 2017, the, the, the people that were, that were giving then, are they still giving in the class of you know 2018 are they giving consistently right I, I guess the question is here like what what do we think if if we're always looking at that raw number what what do you think that the senior people are getting wrong obviously they are getting that wrong what could they look at differently is there is there a, a solution in terms of looking at the lifetime value or the regularity of gifts or what what do you think could be a, a new way of maybe people who are managing major donor programs to look at this specifically. Because I think whatever you solutionize, whatever you've come up with, I think it is applicable across all forms of fundraising. So I'm really interested to kind of unpack that a little bit. So um, the way we look at that is, is for, first of all, we can actually change the 40% loss to somewhere between 6 to 11% loss, which is more normal. And the way you do that is that you start talking to the donor and treating the donor. First of all, you're, you're talking to the donor about what they are interested in. Now, that sounds pretty basic. Like, well, of course, we're going to talk to the donor about what, what but, but when you actually kind of look under the covers and see what's going on in most charities worldwide, we're not talking about the donors because we about they're specifically interested in but we're telling them what we're interested in that they should be interested in. And so that's the first thing that you can repair. The second thing is, is to then do a personalized plan for that donor where the, where those passions and interests are matched to the needs of the charity. And uh, you're, uh, you're, you're executing that plan. Now that sounds again, very, very simple, Uh, but just those those kinds of um, uh, actions uh, change everything in terms of uh, value uh, retention and uh, and how the donor feels. 
Now we add to that the whole business of of uh, uh, of, of valuing the donor and, and treating them as a partner versus a source of cash. So that's an attitudinal thing. But the strategic thing are those two other items. I don't know, Jeff, if you would add anything to that. Yeah, I guess I would say, Tom and Andy, that when we see this va- massive value uh, attrition going on, and we can look at every donor. That's you know, because that's the beauty of major gifts is we can look at these donors one by one, and we'll ask the major gift officer, "Tell us the story behind this donor. This donor gave a hundred thousand, and now they're only giving ten. What's the story behind that donor?" And then they can't answer that. Why? Because they don't know them. And more often than not, the reason for that value attrition is because these major gift officers actually don't know the donor. Mm-hmm. And it's not just the fault of the major gift officer. A lot of times it's coming from those managers and executives who are not worried about relationships. They just want to get the gift in. And mm-hmm. so they're just pressuring them to go after and ask for a big gift at your next meeting rather than, I really want you to figure out what is that donor's passion and interest really about? Because then we're going to match it up with all of our programs and projects that really will inspire that donor to give. (laughs) They're not asking that. They're asking them, go out and get the money. Mm -hmm. And we're saying, no, get to know that donor, understand their passion and interests. And once you know that and you know all of your programs, create a plan for every donor to communicate with them throughout the year that's going to thank them, that's going to set up a set up a solicitation, that's going to show them how their gifts made a difference. So you have a structure for that major gift officer to work within, all in the effort to build that relationship, build the trust of that donor. And that's when we see that we see, you know, transformational giving going on. That's when we see, as Richard said, when the when when the uh, value attrition is only in the six to eleven percent, that's what happens. I think that's a really valuable takeaway. And there's a a similar episode where we discussed with Leslie Pinder about having human centered design processes, uh, which is outside the major giving space. So, for example, if you're designing an event, who are you designing it for, and why would they want it to? Why would they want to do that event rather than thinking about what event can we run that's going to raise loads of money? And I think it's it also reminds me of a conversation I had with a guy called Nick who was telling me about one of the big lessons he'd learned is, is very similar was he'd gone to his mentor and said, I'm going to approach this donor for this project because I think he'd be interested in it. And the mentor said, why would he be interested in it? Yeah. He said, oh, well, it needs funding. Well, exactly. He's got a lot of money. Exactly. That's exactly how <laughs> people approach it. Which is not obviously exactly what you're saying is that point of, but what do you know about the donor that makes this project appealing? And Nick kind of had this moment of being like, huh. And that realization was was huge for him. And I think that's just one of the ones that, that come up. One of the other pieces I think that that translates across fundraising streams that comes from the book is um, that it's okay to be emotional. And I yes. really wanted to to ask you to kind of to kind of run through that. Jeff, I don't know if you wanted to start us off on, on what you mean by that. Yeah, I can start and then Richard can chime in on this one. But 
um, you know, fundraising is emotional, all of it, from direct response fundraising, those letters you get in the mail, but to also to the person who's going to make a decision to make an estate gift um, in their will for you. All giving is emotional. And for some reason on the major gift side over the years, people real think, uh, you know, these donors are giving large amounts. All they want to know is the facts for some reason. They just want to know how much it's going to cost, what's the uh, you know, impact going to be. But it really is about emotion. Um, these donors w- w- will give because their heart is broken. That's the bottom line. And so to have, have a story uh, and have a, a complete understanding of the need that will break the heart of the donor is absolutely essential for major gifts to work. Um, and Richard, he's he's got a lot of stories of, of being in the room when that's happened with a donor. And uh, maybe Richard, you want to share? Yeah. I mean, I, I do have one story about uh, a client we had in, in Midwestern United States uh, where where there was a very high capacity, wealthy donor uh, that was this uh, accountant, CPA, finance kind of guy. Now, by the way, I'm not disparaging uh, finance, CPAs, or finance <laughs> kind of guy. But but he was tight. He was closed. He was cold. He was aloof. Um, and uh, the the strategy of the fundraiser up till this point had been one to, like you were saying, Andy, well, let's tell him what, what, we, what we want to tell him and see if he'll buy it. Um, versus asking them. And so we finally got to the point where we said to the fundraiser, look, you need to find out what, what he is interested in and, and go with that. And so the, the person at the fundraiser asked him and, and he says, well, I'm, I'm really interested in, in a drug recovery program. And, uh, he says, what I'd like to do is, is actually meet somebody at your charity, uh, which by, by the way, was a social service charity. To, to talk to this person uh, about um, about what their journey is in drug recovery. And so the fundraiser tells the story about taking this man down and, uh, and arranging it, and in comes this, this guy who's a recovering drug addict, and they have this very uh, personal conversation. And I, I actually will never forget what, what, uh, what the fundraiser said to me. He says, Richard, says, you wouldn't, wouldn't believe what happened next. He says, the drug recovering drug addict guy got up to leave, and and I I couldn't believe it. This finance, this kind of tight, controlled, aloof guy, broke into convulsive, convulsive crying, and tears, and buried his head on his on his arms onto the onto the desk of this room where the meeting was after the guy left the, the uh, recovering drug addict left uh, left the room. Well, we we dissected, and and so I mean, I we don't have the time to describe the whole story, but the the net result of this whole thing was is is, is that the fundraiser said to the to the gentleman, uh, I'm I'm so sorry that it affected you this way, but what 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 is it that that that's causing this kind of reaction? And so the father, the uh, the uh, the guy, the said, well, basically, my son died of a drug overdose last year. And and so this was a very personal thing, uh, and what the what this man was trying to do, this father was trying to do, was to 
to get a second chance with this other with this other person. And what we find in fundraising, uh, Andy and Tom, is that all the time there's a personal interaction. I mean, uh, we had an experience in in in, uh, in northeastern United States where Jeff was talking to a woman about why she was so emotional about homelessness. And Jeff, you remember this, the, the woman yeah. was very emotional. It turns out she'd lived in her car for two years. Um, so there's these interactions that you got to uncover. Uh, and, and everything is emotional in the, in the charity world. There's some problem that's going on that, um, that people really feel strongly about, which is why they're supporting the charity. That's really, um, that's hit me quite hard. And I think uh, you've hit the nail on the head that it may be for whatever reason, fundraisers of all kinds, fundraisers of all professions have kind of hidden behind the money a little bit, uh, scared of the emotion, scared of, uh, for whatever reason, I think you guys will probably be able to put more uh, more data behind the why for kind of major giving but they've hidden behind the emotion and we've lost some of those really important connections with, with, with real people. Yeah. What, what do you think is the kind of, I guess, uh, um, one for you, Jeff, in terms of how, how do major give it, if, if someone is listening right now, who's a major gifts officer or is managing that team, yeah. how do, what can they start doing from tomorrow to maintain and keep those fundraisers? We've talked about, creating an authentic emotional connection with as many of them as possible. Yeah. What else would you say is in that toolkit that they, that they need to do? I think the the key is not just understanding or not just knowing what all of your donors' passion and interests are, but why. Mm-hmm. So Richard and I are, also, are always talking about what makes a great major gift fundraiser is that they're curious. They're always asking questions they want to know why. They want to know what's behind it all. And if you're really good with your donors, that's what you're always trying to do. You're asking them, well, what brought you to our organization? Why do you have this particular passion? Mm-hmm. What was it when growing up that this brought you to where you are today? And, um, you know, donors amazingly want to tell you their story if they trust you. And you build that trust again um, by not just going after the money, but really going after an authentic relationship. And so doing that will unlock so much for you as a major gift fundraiser to know exactly what to bring to that donor and to help them make an inspirational gift. That's great. And then I guess, because um, I'm conscious of, of, of your time, my last question for you kind of brings us back to the thought of it not just being about the donor and it being about looking after the fundraiser too. Right. If if someone is listening to this and thinking, lapping it up, thinking, okay, great, but how do I also make sure that my fundraisers stay with me? What advice do you have for applying that same kind of logic to their staff? Well, I would say be reasonable because a lot of authority figures aren't. In other words, if you're, if you're an authority figure that's focused on the money, you just can't help yourself 
but focus on, I mean, by, by pressuring your downline to get the money, which is, uh, which is what hurts them. If the focus is instead on developing relationships with donors, then you can tell your, your frontline fundraiser that, you know what? I've heard the story of this this donor of yours that they have a, a business situation going on that's that's hurting their economy, that they're going through a divorce, that they have a health problem, that there's been some crisis, and therefore the ten thousand pounds that they gave last year we're only going to be able to count on five thousand pounds this year. Um, that kind of uh, approach, uh, where it's reasonable, it's just, it's fair is what makes for a, uh, a situation um, and an environment that's kind, that's just, that's gentle, that's donor-focused. And it's not putting so much pressure on the frontline fundraisers so that, and abusing them, which happens most of the time. Yeah, I think I would add to, to Richard... You know, for leaders and and managers is one, in make sure you're investing in in the program. <laughs> so there are a lot of leaders out there that are like, okay, we're going to start a major gift program and we're just going to hire someone, and they have no support. <laughs> they don't have a real budget, and then they say, here's four hundred donors, mm-hmm. and and bring us uh, three million dollars from those four hundred donors, and that's it. And, and that so, happens a lot. That this happens, happens a lot. Yeah. And so, as Richard was saying, you know, as a leader, you need to understand one major gifts is a long, a long game. It's not something that's short term. You, you're not going to turn it around, you know, in six, three months or six months or even a year. It's going to take at least two years for that thing to really get going. So, a long term vision for major gifts. And then come alongside of your mm-hmm. major gift officers to give them all the things they need, the support help, um, a good database, um, good information in that database, um, and, and and training and all these things that they need. And program, um, program information. So they program, actually, yeah. 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 Make sure that you're helping them build relationships with the program people because they need to know those programs. Um, all of that support is needed for major gift officers to be successful. And then finally, this might sound weird, but give them accountability. You know, our the way we work with major gift officers and we work with over 200 of them right now all, all over the all over the country. And we meet every week with those major gift officers to make sure that they're staying focused and accountable, providing them encouragement and strategy to, to make sure that they're successful. That's what it takes. So if you're a manager or a leader and you really want your major gift officer to be successful, that's the kind of management, ongoing management you need to help provide to come alongside of those people and give them the focus and the structure that they need to be successful and then let them go out and be great at it. All right, we've come to the section where we talk about your peeve and your passion, your pet peeve and your passion in the sector. We've got 60 seconds on our imaginary clock. We're <laughs> going to start with you, Richard. What's the what's the next biggest bugbear you have in the sector and why? 
Well, the thing that just irritates me, and I mean, it really irritates me, is treating donors as sources of cash. I mean, when you look at fundraising in general, not only major gifts, but fundraising in general, uh, donors are considered this uh, this utility. I mean, this thing, this ATM machine, you go and just cash it out, pull cash out of them, make the thing happen. And that's why in the philanthropic world, worldwide, no matter what culture you're in, donor attrition is at a high of 46, 48%. Uh, I mean, if you were running a commercial company, you wouldn't have uh, a customer attrition that, 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 that is that bad. And so, and this is a result of us treating donors not as partners, but as, as sources of cash. Very irritating. And then we call them prospects instead of donors when they've given money. And uh, we uh, are transactional in everything we do and say with them. Very, very irritating. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, that is good. <laughs> very well put indeed. Nice. And more or less 60 seconds bang on. Yeah, very wow. good. I'm yeah, an old radio up, guy. On. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Jeff, over to you. You're, okay. you're, you're bugbear. Yeah, bugbear. I like that term. <laughs> so my pet peeve, I would say, is leadership, nonprofit leadership's inability to think long-term. And then what happens when they can't think long-term is that they don't invest in these major gift programs, plan giving, that will ultimately get them to grow. And we see this now, we, we see the result of that short-term thinking from this pandemic. So there are a lot of organizations um, that are failing right now because they didn't have a major gift or a planned giving program set up years ago. And so now they're scrambling because they were sh so short term. All they, you know, a lot of them were just about putting on events <laughs> and, and those dried up. Even the virtual events were not as effective as those in-person events for cash for them. And so they're struggling. And the reason why they didn't want to invest in major and mid or in plan giving is because they wanted to see that immediate um, result. And it's just not going to happen overnight. And we see this over and over again. And so many frustrated major gift officers who are part of organizations where, you know, the, the CEO really doesn't want to invest not only their rev their money into the program, but their own time. They think somebody else should take care of it. And uh, it's frustrating. And it's what's causing um, nonprofits to fail is the failure to think long-term, have a vision. What we like and the organizations we like to work with are the ones that say, okay, here we are today. And in five years and 10 years, we want to be double or triple where we are because there is so much need out there. We have to bring in the money. And to do that, we know that we're, we've got to invest in major gifts and plan giving and build those relationships with donors. Those are the organizations and the leadership that we like to work with because we know they will be set up to be able to take counsel and to start moving forward and really build relationships and know how to talk to their boards about, hey, board, this is not going to take 
a year. It's going to take two, three, four, and five years to really, really see the fruits of our labor. Are you with us? You need to be with us. Those are the organizations we love to work with. Nice. I love that. Was that three minutes? It was a long long time, but you got fired up and that's what counts. Uh, So I'm not going to penalize you for that. I think that was uh, straight to the point, even though it was longer than (laughs) maybe we imagined, but there we go. How is that even possible? He was just thinking long term about it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's all. It was a long term answer. And I guess to to round it off, um, you've you've gone through your, uh, your bugbears uh, gents, what is your what is your passion? Yeah. Well, I think Richard, you and I both. I mean, we want to make the world a better place. I mean that that's that honestly and very sincerely is why we get up in the morning and work as hard as we do. Uh, besides needing a cup of coffee or something like that, but it, uh, the the uh, it, it, it is a real motivator for us. We, I mean, we like to run a good business, and that's that's. There's some pleasure in that and some payback. But if if good is not being done on the planet, not only in terms of people's lives and, and health and education and uh, in the faith that they want to develop, uh, anything related to justice, anything like that, mm. to conservation, yeah, uh, all of these things are what's so important to us. Uh, and and why charities exist? They exist because there's a situation on the planet that needs to be addressed, and we're. Yeah. I mean, that's Jeff. You and I, just, we're just pumped about that. I mean, Tom and Andy, you you've been friends for a while. Richard and I have been friends since the mid '90s, mm-hmm. and wow. we have shared so many different experiences together. Um, in you know in working together in different countries, being at um, our clients when they're talking about um, the hurt that they're addressing, or just sitting around in each other's living rooms talking about what's going on in the world today. Mm -hmm. We are two very, (laughs) we're very emotional people. Mm -hmm. And we've always come from the same place that the reason we're doing this work the reason we get up, as Richard said, every morning is because we want to make the world a better place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we love this work be- and it's why we're motivated to try to bring what we always call the veritas way of major gifts and mid-level and planned giving to as many people as possible because we know it works because it's all around centered on building relationships with donors. I think, so, the la- yeah. Yeah, I, think, I think the last thing I would say about that too is that when you when you think about why a charity exists, it exists because there's uh, either a problem to be fixed on the planet, or a situation to be addressed and enhanced, a potential to be reached, and we have a bunch of people around us, these donors, and these volunteers, who are thinking the same thing, and so now all of us together are working to make something really good happen on the planet. I mean, what's better than that? It's just, it's just an amazing thing. Yeah. You're listening to Fixing Fundraising. Don't forget, you can listen to all of our episodes at fixingfundraising.uk 
or on your podcast provider, whether that's Spotify, Anchor, Podbean, or Apple Podcasts. And now, back to the episode. Rich and Jeff, you've made it to part three. Question time? Mm-hmm. Question time. Lovely jingle provided to me by Mike Glamour's assistant, Tom the Frame. Shoot, I, I could have added the yeah. drums in there. You're welcome. You're welcome. You get a different one every time, and I feel like that was one of our best. Um, yeah, well, there we go. Really? That said well, a lot about the quality. <laughs> the most recent one was played on a kazoo, so. Uh, oh, okay. The less said about that, the better. Um, cool. We've got a bunch of questions for you. Um, so we'll, we'll start with this one. Uh, Jeff, do you want to kick us off with if there's one resource, a blog, a website, a training course that you'd recommend people go to, to get further insight on this? Uh, of course you got to read our blog, passionate giving blog. Um, you got to go to our Veritas group Academy for our courses and you got to read our two books. It's not just about the money and it's not just about the donor. Um, these, these are resources for you to, uh, really know how to do major gifts, right? And if you go to our website at veritasgroup.com, we've got tons of free resources, white papers, uh, our blogs, podcasts, all of that is, uh, free to use. So check it out. Guys, were there any examples that you wanted to give that didn't come up in the first uh, a discussion, anything you wanted to talk about and get off your chest that you think would be a good thing to include. Yeah, we were talking about, uh, you know, how it makes a difference, a, a quantitative difference, a measurable difference when you actually you, you get a, uh, talk to a donor about something that they're interested in. In other words, you're identifying their passions and interests and you're talking to them about that. So here's a couple of uh, uh, of stories about that, and, and I'll make it very short. So there's a donor in the West Coast of a large a large charity. It was a five thousand dollar donor, five thousand, five thousand, five thousand. This woman is very, very wealthy, very wealthy, could give way more than that. And what we did with the uh, frontline fundraisers say, now identify her passions and interests because you're just talking to her about the general cause. So they identified her passions and interests and started skewing the messaging and the asks that direction. And within about four to six months after that was happening, this woman gave uh, $4 million cash and pledged another $8 million on top of that the following year. In another situation, a donor, a very wealthy donor, was giving uh, $450,000 a year to a charity which is a large sum of money. Uh, we admit that. But when you look at this person's capacity, there was substantially more that they could do. So when the front frontline fundraiser matched the passions and interests to that donor versus the general ask, that donor gave $9 million. Um, we have story and sto- after story of those kinds of things happening where a donor who has capacity uh, gives these transformational gifts when the ask and the treatment of the donor is personalized to their passions and interests. That's a good one. You know, one of the things that, oh, it gets Richard and I so worked up. We've written about this. We've podcast about this. 
It's this whole idea of the word annual or annual giving, annual gift or annual giving. It just drives us nuts. And I don't know if you have that nomenclature in the UK, but in the States, it's pervasive, especially on universities, this annual giving program or annual gift program. And what it does, it tells the donor, hey, we only, we only need one gift from you per year. And we're going to come out to you for that one time mm-hmm. a year. And then we want you to always give that. Um, we're, let's just make it in November every year. So every November, we're going to ask for that annual gift. And that's how we train these donors to think, oh, they just need one gift a year from us. Rather than turning this around, figuring out what do the donors want to do? And if they're passionate about something and we have programs and projects that they would love to fund, why can't we go out to them two or three times a year? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why do we have to set this whole idea up that this is some annual thing? No. And we just need one gift. Donors, you would not believe when you ask them, they will want to give. That's the that's well, key. especially if they're interested in it. If they're interested in it, and you ask, they'll want to give. Mm-hmm. So this whole word of idea of annual is just maddening to us. And we've got one other word that that's also uh, gets us going. It's the word prospect. Prospect. Yeah. When it's applied to donors. So let's say uh, that the two of you, Andy and Tom, are donors of a charity that Jeff and I are running. You're really good donors. But when I'm in a meeting, I talk to you about the two prospects, Andy and Tom. It, uh, here in the United States, it's used all the time. I don't know about in the UK or in Europe, but it's like uh, it, it's a, it's a it's a term that um, that came out of the educational university uh, uh, fundraising setting here. And you should never call a donor a prospect. It'd be like calling a good customer in a retail store a potential customer. They're not a potential customer. They're a customer. Uh, that's that's what the facts are. And so that's that's uh, another thing that uh, has been really annoying yeah. to us. Yeah. Starting with you, Jeff, if you were yeah. going to be followed around by a sign above your head, it floats. Don't ask why it's there. It's just there. Um, there's a sign above your head, follows you everywhere you go. It can be double-sided. What does that sign say? I think it says passionate guy who wants to help change the world. Nice. And Richard? Uh, mine would say it's not about the money. Oh. Mm-hmm. And uh, then the, the people, when they come up and ask me what it's not about, I would say, I would get in the conversation. There's nothing that's ever about the money. Money just represents a value. Oh, I like that. Nice. I love that. That's a great sign. Yep. And then I have a final question for you. It's very important. Why is coronavirus so bad for pirates? (laughs) Why? (laughs) Because their R rate is so high. (laughs) Ah. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm I'm afraid that's as good as it gets. Uh, Thanks so much for coming on. Um, if people want to find more of you on on the internet, where can they go? Yeah, they can go to Veritas Group, V-E-R-I-T-U-S group.com. 
And uh, we've got everything you need right there. Oh, we've got a load of stuff there. Remember, it's T-U-S-V-E-R-I-T-U-S group.com because sometimes people spell it wrong. Excellent. We'll make sure we put links in the show notes as well um, out, to your, out to your website so people can people can check that out. But thank you so much for joining us um, and for for sharing your wisdom. Thanks so much. Great it's really fun. Yeah, fun to yeah. talk with you guys.